As Latter-day Saint leaders, we face very difficult conversations that put us at risk of saying the wrong thing that can do more harm than good. Many of these conversations relate to LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Have you had a fellow board member come out to you about their LGBT identity? Have you had LGBT neighbors and you just don't know what to say to them, so you ignore them instead? Have you wrestled with balancing love for your fellow men while still respecting the doctrines of the restored gospel? In order to help, Leading Saints has put together the LGBT Saints Library with more than 20 presentations featuring individuals who have a unique perspective or expertise around this topic. Three of the most popular sessions are available now to watch. Simply text the word LEAD to 474747 to start watching now or visit leadingsaints.org LGBT. The following episode is a throwback episode, one that was published previously and was extremely popular. To see the details of when this was originally published, see the show notes. Enjoy this throwback episode. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation, much like this podcast. We have articles at leadingsaints.org you should check out. A weekly newsletter you should subscribe to that also has unique content. So let's jump into this week's episode. Today, I'm in Springville, Utah, sitting down with Mark Matthews. How are you, Mark? I'm great. Thanks. Awesome. Now, uh, give us a little background. What does the audience need to know about Mark? Well, I don't know if they need to know much about me, but I, I grew up in Houston, Texas. I was uh, born there and, and raised in Kingwood, Texas. Came to BYU as a freshman and uh, served my mission in Guatemala. I eventually found my wife here at BYU. Typical uh, we story. Right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Singles ward. Uh, went up to Utah State for my PhD, where I got involved with seminary and institute teaching, which I've been involved with ever since. I've been with uh, seminaries and institutes of the church for about 14 years now. And the last uh, year and a half, I've been at BYU as a BYU instructor. Nice. Now, when, when was the moment you knew, like, I'm going to be a seminary teacher? Was that the, the length of your vision? Like, I just want to show up to a high school every day and teach seminary. Well, you know, it depends on how long of a story you want. I became very interested in my, my senior year in the gospel through several events in my life. I became very interested in knowing and understanding the scriptures, the doctrines of the gospel. And, and uh, so when I went up to, to BYU, I began to buy all the books I could. I, I neglected my homework and read the Messiah series by Bruce R. <laughs> McConkie and Doctrines of Salvation by Joseph Fielding Smith. And and the more I studied, the more I just wanted to devote my life to this. And I didn't know that there was a way to do that until I was in the Joseph Smith building one day and I saw this advertisement for seminary teaching. Now, I'd grown up in Houston. All I'd known is early morning seminary. Yeah, I didn't know yeah. that you could be a seminary teacher as a profession and work for the church as a teacher. And uh, I grabbed one of their pamphlets. I brought it home. I actually still have that pamphlet. And I just thought, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to devote it to studying and teaching and and being involved in, in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And before that, was were you going to be an attorney or a doctor? Or I think my mom wanted me to be a, a lawyer. She thinks I'm good at arguing. Uh, <laughs> and then she also says that I wanted to be a, a professor. I wanted to, but I just didn't know my topic. And so, you know, I, I'm here at BYU and, and, uh, and that's my subject. That's yeah. my passion. So, and this is, I mean, teaching, especially going into, you know, teaching seminary and things. I mean, this is like the Super Bowl. I mean, or the MBA of when you're at BYU in the religion department. I mean, isn't that everybody's dream in your industry? Well, I don't know if it's everybody's. I, I think many are uh, very content. They enjoy seminary much better, but it, it was always my dream. Yeah because of the reasons you stated. I mean, it's the, it's some of the best teachers and best scholars in the church end up over there. And so, yeah, I, I, I love being over there. I love, uh, associating with such great men and women and that's a wonderful experience. And so what'd you get your PhD in? My PhD is in education. Nice. And is it pretty, I mean, if you want to teach at BYU, I mean, PhD has got to be on in your plan, right? Yeah. Yeah. You have to have a PhD. Yeah. Uh, education PhD prepares me to be what they call a teaching track professor. Typically the, the, uh, the other, you know, your real scholarly professors, they have PhDs in near Eastern studies yeah. and, Hebrew and history and the ex Bible. Exactly, right. <laughs> so, yeah, cool. And so now you, uh, you teach full time at, at BYU have a, the semester just started. Right? Yep. And my first interaction with you was at BYU education week, which 
is uh, to me, I don't feel like when I don't feel like the church or BYU necessarily, they're not looking at it as a, you know, profit making machine. So they're not like over advertising it, but it's sort of this hidden secret. I feel like, like a lot of people in my generation, our generation don't know about education week. And that's why you get a lot of people in there, you know, retired people there that show up. Has that been your perception of education waker? Well, yeah, I agree. I, I think the other thing is, uh, it's like when I advertised it to my ward, they said, well, we all have to work and we have kids in yeah. school. So I, I think part of the reason you get the, the group that you do is because they are retired and they are just some of the most faithful men and women in the church, just there because they want to learn more about the gospel. Yeah. And so, yeah, I love the group, but you're right. It's not, it's not always a, a young crowd, right. <laughs> but uh, it's a wonderful group. Yeah, it is. It is. And uh, to me, it's like EFY for adults, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just so much content and you really, you only scratch the surface when you're there. There's so many other, you know, different classes that you just can't make to all of them. So, and you've taught that this is your fourth year there, right? I believe. Yeah. And you taught, what was the title? It was about temples, but what was the general title of, of your course? I can't remember the exact name, but something along the lines of the house of the Lord, the unfolding development of the purpose and power of temples. Wow. And, and you were a rock star on this year. I mean, there was like overflow after overflow and uh, they put you in the Mar building, which doesn't, they're not big theater rooms. I mean, they're, they're smaller classrooms, but hopefully next year, maybe the Marriott center. I don't know. But. Well, that that's <laughs> the first time I've experienced that kind of uh, interest in my classes, the other classes, I've never filled the room before. And so, yeah, to fill the room and then have overflow, uh -huh. like multiple overflow rooms was still kind of shocking to me. I never quite got used to that. Uh -huh. I'd go into the overflow rooms just to kind of say hello to the people because I was so surprised they, they really were there. So Yeah, yeah that, that was awesome. And you made this comment that, you know, every year you're going to put temple in the title of yeah. your class because it obviously it draws a crowd and you, you lived up to the, the hype as well. But what is it about the temple? I mean, because everybody in there, even myself, I mean, I've been bishop and a stake presidency. I mean, I've grown up in the church. Many people in the room, I mean, they were the individuals who have years and years in the church attending the temple. But there's just something about the temple that we just, I don't know, like we sort of look towards scholars like, okay, you figured this out. Tell us more what, what we're missing in there. Do you feel like that's the case with as far as the temple goes and the doctrines of the temple are just harder to grasp? Yeah, I. Yeah, I want to be careful how I say this, but but yeah, I, I agree. I think the temple is something that members of the church love. They love the experience overall that they have in the temple. But because many people are very uncomfortable to talk about what happens in the temple, mm -hmm. there's not a lot of discussion. So there's not a lot of lessons. There's not a lot of understanding. And uh, I think that's unfortunate because I think there's many things that we can talk about that happen in the temple that are not that are not the kind of sacred things that we need to uh, be careful about talking about. I mean, many of the, the, the story plot of Adam and Eve, that's all stuff you can read in the scriptures. And, and uh, many of the principles are found and revealed in the scriptures. And so because it's the temple, a lot of people are not willing to talk about it. And so that kind of leaves it open for a lot of people to have a lot of questions, hmm. a lot of misunderstandings. And uh, so it's a great topic to discuss as long as you don't cross those lines and, and talk about things that are yeah. inappropriate to talk about outside the temple. Yeah. And you filled a whole week full of, there's plenty to talk about and you were spent most of time in doctrine and covenants and going through, you know, the ordinances and keys. You're talking yeah. About. And in fact, I think that's another thing that surprises people. Most people think, Oh, if you want to understand the temple, you need to go to the old Testament. Hmm. I believe if you want to go to the, if you want to understand the temple, the best source is the doctrine and covenants as the Lord reveals and restores these things. There's plenty of information in the Doctrine and Covenants to help us understand the purpose and the power of, of temples. Yeah. Yeah. And it's powerful the, the way you did it. And, and I, and I love the way that you went through some of these principles, because like you said, a lot of the time I feel like the only time I can learn about the temple is like, you know, my father leaning over to me in the celestial room and whispering this and this and this, you know, like, right. Oh wow. But in reality, there's so much doctrine outside of, you know, this, the ceremonies of the temple that, that brings so much meaning while you're there, which, which I really appreciated. So a few things I want to spend our time on today as we go through this, because I sat in your classes feeling like, you know, a lot of it was like, oh yeah, I forgot about this, forgot about that. Oh, that's where that scripture is. But then there's some doctrines of like priesthood keys, for example, you went through the whole in the Kirtland temple and the priesthood keys are restored to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and, and what those keys were and who restored them and the purpose behind them. And, but there are just some things like, wow, you know, I've never 
I've never seen it that way or understood that doctrine or knew where to find it. And so I want to go through talking about primarily this concept of keys because everybody is called as, for example, a bishop. You know, obviously they're giving keys. They're called as an elders quorum president. They're giving keys. Even, you know, my time as a deacon's quorum president, teacher's quorum president. I mean, I didn't even understand, even have an inkling of what priesthood keys were. And I think we go through it like, oh, the keys mean, oh, he gets the last say in the meetings, or that just means he's in charge. And and I'm, I worry that there's a lot of leaders out there that don't grasp the doctrine of keys enough to really understand the authority they hold and also kind of live up to that potential that they have. So where would you say, where do we start with understanding priesthood keys? Well, that, that's a great question and a great point. My, I, I agree with you. When I teach it in a BYU class or even in a seminary or institute class, I always start with a couple of questions. I ask them, what is the priesthood and what are priesthood keys? And what is not surprising is that almost all of my students can answer what priesthood is. They're quick to say, you know, priesthood is the power and authority of God. I ask them who holds it and they say, you know, worthy male members of the church. They're very quick. They understand priesthood very clearly. But then I ask them what priesthood keys are. And there's kind of this, this look in their eyes that they, they've heard the concept, they've heard the term, but they're not really comfortable in defining it. And so I, what I help them understand is that the best and simplest way to understand what priesthood keys are is to know who holds priesthood keys. Priesthood keys are held by priesthood presidents. Counselors don't hold keys. Priesthood presidents hold keys. So we're talking bishops, stake presidents, quorum presidents. And as soon as you understand clearly who holds them, it becomes obvious what they are. These are the, it's the authority to preside, the right to be the president, the right of presidency. It's the power, the authoritative power to direct, control, and preside over the priesthood and the work of the priesthood in the church within a jurisdiction. And once you realize that that's what priesthood keys are, yeah, very few men hold priesthood keys. Priesthood keys are what direct the work. And so understanding what they are, particularly if you hold them, helps you recognize that you have a special priesthood authority that very few people hold. And it gives you a right to represent the Lord in not only acting for the Lord, but in directing and presiding over how the work of the Lord will be done within your jurisdiction. And I think that's a very powerful concept to understand about priesthood keys, a very important one to, to understand. And obviously we know that in, in the stories of the Doctrine and Covenants that the priesthood keys were not restored with the priesthood authority through, uh, you know, John the Baptist and Peter, James and John, but that came later on. And so we can't just assume that they're one and the same or there's a clear uh, separation of what priesthood is and what priesthood keys are. Yeah. So, I mean, some keys were, were restored when the priesthood authority was restored. When the Aaronic priesthood was restored, he was given the Aaronic priesthood and the keys of the Aaronic priesthood so that he could preside over the work. Otherwise, you know, you, Joseph Smith couldn't have baptized anybody without asking permission mm. from John the Baptist. John the Baptist, if he held the keys and didn't confer them, he'd be acting basically as the bishop and, and Joseph Smith would have to continually turn to his authority. But he gave Joseph the authority and the keys of the Aaronic priesthood. Peter, James, and John did a similar thing with the Melchizedek priesthood. They gave the Melchizedek priesthood and what they called the keys of the kingdom, which would be the keys to preside over the church. So with that authority, Joseph Smith could organize and lead the church. But you're right in recognizing that additional angels would later come to continue to deliver priesthood keys, keys of dispensations, keys, as we talked about, that Moses, Elias, and Elijah delivered that deal with temple and temple work. Yeah. And that's, uh, those are powerful stories to, and the way you broke those down as far as, you know, and I loved how you, you talked about, went through each key of, okay, you know, who's the first one? It wasn't Elijah, it was Moses, right? Moses came first in, in the Kirtland temple and, and, uh, restored those keys, which, uh, what key was that one? Well, uh, I don't know how much of an explanation you want, but I'd love to give it to you. Yeah. Uh, Moses gives the, uh, the keys of the gathering of Israel, which most people just simply think of it in terms of missionary work. But as I pointed out in my class, the great purpose of gathering to the church is ultimately to gather to the temple. That's in fact, exactly what Moses did. Moses gathered the children of Israel from Egypt and led them directly to Mount Sinai, which was their temple. And so the keys of the gathering of Israel begin with missionary work and gathering people to the church, but they culminate in gathering those people to the temple to receive the blessings, uh, the full blessings of the gospel. And you, you talked about this concept of, I mean, cause you, you just said like the Aaronic priesthood and Melchizedek priesthood were, were restored 
And then it comes the question, well, why couldn't they just gone with that and continue the church going forward? But it's all ties down to the, the temple and the ordinances that needed to take place in the temple, which are all part of the new and everlasting covenant, right? Correct. Oh, I was listening. I, I passed your test there. <laughs> Good. So, what, so going back to as far as those that hold the keys, a lot of people, I, I feel like, you know, when I was a bishop, it was clear what many times the role of my keys that I, you know, my keys allowed the sacrament to be passed or, or blessed. And, you know, if somebody went on a business trip, they couldn't just bless and, and uh, partake of the sacrament in their hotel room. They would need to reach out to me. And that was an, an ordinance that I would need to approve under my keys. I mean, this is how I, a uh, bishop directs, right? So what about like elders quorum presidents or teachers quorum presidents, deacons quorum presidents? Is there more to it than just saying, I, you know, like you said, the keys of, of presidency that, that you're in charge? Well, yeah, great question. So, yeah, I mean, with a bishop, you see it clearly in ordinances. Like you pointed out, the ordinance of baptism, it's seen every week that a young man administers the sacrament. First thing he does after he's done blessing the sacrament before he even gets up from kneeling is he looks over the bishop and the bishop, you know, nods his head. That's an acknowledgement of keys Mm -hmm. that while there are many men in the ward that can bless the sacrament, they can't do it independent of the keys held by the bishop. So that's an obvious one with bishop and ordinances. With other quorum presidents, they don't have this direct authority over ordinances, but they still have that right, those priesthood keys to preside over the work. And so it's seen in, in a variety of ways. You know, a deacon's quorum president often, unfortunately, you know, they're, because they're young, they often defer to the you know, young men advisor over them. But in reality, the deacon's quorum president holds the authority of that deacon's quorum. And it's his responsibility to make assignments as simple as things like who's going to bring the bread or fast offering routes, who's going to go out and collect fast offerings. But he has that authority, the keys to preside over the work of salvation within his quorum. And that's an important idea. Melchizedek priesthood quorum presidents, like an elders quorum president, they also hold that same kind of those keys to preside over the work. And it's seen primarily through the work of, of ministering, ministering brothers. They preside over that work. They hold the keys. And so they make those assignments and they participate in that work. And, and with these new changes, you know, the Melchizedek priesthood president, the elders quorum president, he holds a lot of authority now. Uh, you know, a high priest group leader held some authority and an elders quorum president used to hold some authority. But by consolidating the high priests and elders together, an elders quorum president holds basically the, the keys to preside over every man in the ward, except for the bishopric. And he presides over the work of salvation that that elders quorum does, including ministering and, and other efforts uh, related to it. And so it's, it's an enormous responsibility. It's similar to the bishop now, the elders quorum president, the work that he's involved with. Yeah, for sure. I, I remind my bishop, I, I sometimes feel like just a male Relief Society president. Obviously, Relief Society president doesn't have keys, but there's a greater responsibility as an elders quorum president yeah. now than than was before. So, if let's say you sit down with a brand new deacon, uh, your calling is the deacon's quorum president. How would you suggest or what doctrine could you teach or maybe you'd give them that same spiel that you just articulated there. How would you empower them in their calling as the deacon's quorum president and emphasizing the keys that they hold? So that's an excellent question. In Doctrine and Covenants section 18, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery have just been ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood. They hold keys of the Melchizedek priesthood to preside over the church. And they ordain, uh, there's evidence that they are also ordained David Whitmer. And it's this that they're referring to in, in verse 9 when it says that they hold the authority of an apostle because Peter, James, and John have just given them that authority. And they want to know about this calling. What are they supposed to do with this newly conferred Melchizedek priesthood? And the Lord's answer to them, I think, is instructive. I think it's instructive for all callings in the church, but particularly for priesthood keys. He says, remember the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. And then he explains the atonement of Christ. For behold, the Lord your Redeemer suffereth death in the flesh. Wherefore, he suffereth the pains of all men, that all men might repent and come unto him. And then in that context of explaining the worth of souls and the price that was paid for those souls by Jesus Christ, he famously says, And if it so be that you should labor all your days in crying repentance unto this people, and bring save it be one soul unto me, 
how great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of my father. And now if your joy will be great with one soul that you have brought unto me into the kingdom of my father, how great will be your joy if you should bring many souls unto me. And I just think that's particularly powerful before the Lord explains quorums or presidencies or church organizations or oath and covenant of the priesthood before he teaches any of that, he wants them to understand that the worth of souls is great and their job is to bring souls to Christ. And so as I would, you know, set apart a new deacon's quorum president, that's what I would want them to understand that as the president of the deacon's quorum, you have charge over these deacons. These deacons are of great worth to the Lord and your job is to bring them to Christ. That's your job. That's your one job. And I think it's powerful to have that clear focus because there's a lot of things in all of our callings we can be distracted by. There's so many different things we're asked to do, but in the end we have one job and that one job is to bring souls to Christ. And if you can help a deacon's quorum president understand that, that he's got this charge, this authority over these deacons, and he's got to bring souls to Christ, not only in his deacon's quorum, but in the work of salvation that they'll do in collecting fast offerings and partaking of the sacrament. I mean, that's what they're doing as they go out to the congregation is they're offering them the sacrament. They're bringing souls to Christ. And if they understand that concept, it is empowering to them to know that they have that authority to direct that work of bringing souls to Christ. Mm, I love that. And, and what a great scripture and, and context to, to share with a, a new a new deacon scorn president, because I remember being a young deacon scorn president, just feeling like, oh, they want me to stand up and start the meeting, like, welcome to elders quorum. I'll turn it over to the teacher. And that was it. Right. And uh, but to empower them and keep reminding them of that, like, hey, you remember why we're doing this? Because every soul's precious. How can we bring them unto Christ this week? Right. And, and right. really enabling them that way. I think. It's and fantastic. I try and help them think about that when it comes to planning mutual activities. You know, I've told them your activity isn't, you know, basketball this week. Your activity is bring <laughs> souls to Christ through whatever the activity is, in this case, basketball. So how are you going to do that? And they think, well, you know, there's so-and-so and he's not very active, but he loves to play basketball. Okay. Right. But that's your job. That's what we do. Regardless of our calling, that's our job. That's the responsibility. Yeah. And I can see a similar uh, conversation happening with, uh, you know, as you, as obviously the stake president would call the Hilders Corn president, but you know, for the bishop to keep reminding them, remember you have keys and in Dr. Kevin's 18, we can learn, you know, what, what's our main focus here is to bring people to Christ. I think that's a powerful message that keeps people engaged because sometimes you can be burned out, overwhelmed. And so bring them back to the core, the root of the purpose of these offices, these uh, priesthood and the, the keys is important. I, I agree. And I think that's why it's so profound that that is the Lord's initial explanation of priesthood to these men is they've just received priesthood and this is what he wants them to understand. There is something so focusing and so empowering about understanding that simple concept. I think it's powerful and no coincidence that that's the Lord's first message to these newly ordained priesthood holders. Awesome. Love it. Anything we've missed as far as the, how priesthood keys are manifested in a traditional ward today? No, those, those would be the main ideas. I think with a ward, I mean, it also understanding who holds keys helps you understand who you need to follow. And that's an important concept as well, that uh, sometimes you might get contradictory messages, but you follow those who hold the keys. So if, you know, a member of the ward is saying one thing, your bishop's saying something else, you, you follow the keys. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, I, I was put in a position once where the stake primary president gave one direction and I gave another and, and it put the primary ward primary president kind of in a bind. And, and the stake president tried to help her understand you, you follow the keys. The keys are who have the authority to direct the work. And, and while that's typically not something that we have to worry about, it is important to know that. And that goes all the way to the top in who holds the keys of the kingdom. Knowing who holds those keys uh, is the answer to who you need to follow. Ultimately following the president of the church and the first presidency in Corinth of the Twelve who hold those keys over the entire church, the keys of the kingdom which is the church of Jesus Christ of yeah. Latter-day Saints. And, and we'll hear that phrase a lot in conference uh, as they talk about, or they do the sustainings, right? Um, about prophets, seers, and revelators. And then, uh, you know, President Nelson is the person who holds all the keys of the priesthood. Um, any more context or explanation you can bring to that phrase? Because we, we hear it and it's sort of like, oh yeah, that just means he's, he's really, really in charge. <laughs> no, that's a great point. In fact, I, I, I just learned a little bit more about this recently. Elder Renland wrote a book in which he explains some of this. And I thought it was a powerful insight he gave that uh, it's because the apostles, each of them hold all the priesthood keys 
that they can serve as prophets, seers, and revelators. We've got a lot of general authorities, but we only have 15 prophets, seers, and revelators. And what empowers them to be prophets, seers, and revelators is that they, each of them, when they are set apart as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, they receive all priesthood keys to preside over the entire church. Now, they cannot exercise those priesthood keys in full until they become you know, the senior apostle, the president of the church, but they can still use those keys in their calling and their responsibilities to receive revelation, to speak with authority to the church, to act as prophets, seers, and revelators. Uh, they must do that in harmony with the other apostles and under the direction of the senior apostle who is the president of the church, but they all hold those keys. And, uh, but like the, the phrase says in the temple recommend interview, uh, the only man that holds and is authorized to exercise all priesthood keys in their full would be the senior apostle, the president of the church on the earth. Yeah. And, um, oh, and I want to ask it because a lot of times, you know, we have uh, visiting authorities that come to a state conference, for example, and, you know, they're on assignment. Uh, 70 does not hold keys, but uh, they often use the phrase that they, they're there. They're, the, the keys have been delegated to them in some aspect. Any, is there anything more to this concept of delegating keys that's worth mentioning? Yeah, I, I think the idea is it's important one to understand delegated authority. It's why, you know, I serve as a bishop. I can authorize my counselor to do much of the things that I do if I give him that authorization. Now, he can't do them independent of me. He can't just take that responsibility to himself or usurp it. But if I delegate that responsibility to him, he can act through the keys that I hold. And he has that delegated authority. Well, similarly, that's how the 70 operate. The First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve hold the keys. But when they are sent by the First Presidency and the Twelve on assignment, they have that delegated authority. And so they act as under those keys, under that authority, and they, and they can act as an apostle and represent the brethren, the senior brethren in, in doing so. Awesome. Anything as far as looking at it from the context of in the Kirtland Temple, when they are restored, that, uh, you know, you, I, I guess I'm getting to this concept of one thing I never understand is, is more as far as the role of keys as it relates to sealing power. We think of sealing power, obviously, you know, we go to the temple and we are sealed as a family, but there's a much broader understanding of sealing power. Yeah, I, I agree. So, yeah, to kind of catch up to, to the Kirtland Temple idea, I mean, when Peter, James and John come, they give the keys to preside over the church. And so for years, Joseph Smith has all the authority he needs to organize and lead the church. But there are still some specific works that need to be performed in the church that haven't been revealed yet. And so when Moses, Elias, and Elijah come, they each confer their, their priesthood keys dealing with the temple that allow Joseph Smith to preside over and direct specific works within the church. Like we already talked about Moses, the gathering of Israel, not only to the church through missionary work, but ultimately to the temple. Elias restores the keys of Abraham's dispensation, which simply stated are the keys of celestial marriage, the celestial marriage covenant, which is the heart and core of the Abrahamic covenant. And finally, Elijah comes and he confers what we call sealing power. And sealing power, in my experience, is many members of the, the church have a very limited understanding of what sealing power is. Mm -hmm. They look at it as simply being sealed in the temple. And so when you tell them that Elias restored the covenant of celestial marriage and Elijah restored sealing power, that seems really redundant to them yeah. and they, don't, they yeah. don't understand that. And so it's helpful to understand what, what prophets and apostles have said about what sealing power is. It's much, much broader than we often recognize. In fact, sealing power is the authority to preside over and seal all ordinances of the temple and all ordinances for the living and the dead. I'll read you a couple of statements. President Boyd K. Packer said, after Elijah came commenting on it, he said, thereafter ordinances were not tentative, but permanent. The sealing power was with it. No authorization transcends it in value. The power gives substance and eternal permanence to all ordinances performed with proper authority for both the living and the dead. In the Bible dictionary under Elijah, it says, we learn from Latter-day Revelation that Elijah held the sealing power of the Melchizedek priesthood by which things bound or loosed on earth are bound or loosed in heaven. Thus, the keys of this power are once again operative on the earth and are used in performing all the ordinances of the gospel for the living and the dead. 
President Joseph Fielding Smith made a similar statement. The sealing power puts the stamp of approval upon every ordinance that is done in this church and more particularly those that are performed in the temples of the Lord. And so it, uh, this authority worked retroactively, right? So we performed ordinances in the past up to 1836 when Elijah comes. But when Elijah gives this authority, it puts, as Joseph Fielding Smith said, a stamp of approval, a seal upon all the ordinances that had been performed previous to this time. And what, what these statements are trying to help us understand is that all ordinances need to be eternal. And the sealing power is the power by which all ordinances are made eternally permanent. And so all ordinances are performed and need to be performed by sealing power. And when you learn that for the first time, you know, it sounds confusing because you think, well, my dad baptized me and he doesn't hold sealing power. Well, no, he doesn't. But he baptized you under the authorization of the keys of the bishop who operated under the keys of the stake president, who operated under the keys of the president of the church, who holds that sealing power. Therefore, everything that is done under the direction of the president of the church carries that weight of sealing power. And so a baptism can be eternal because it's performed under the direction of those keys and all ordinances that applies to. But the reason it becomes particularly necessary for temple ordinances is because it's in temple ordinances, for example, baptisms for the dead, that we perform a baptism here on earth and we expect it to reach beyond the veil and rescue somebody that's on the other side. Well, that's a clear use of this doing something on earth that has power on the other side. And so we see sealing power operate dramatically in that way. Likewise with temple marriages where a person is sealed for time and for all eternity. And so you see sealing power dramatically used in the temple. And so sometimes people think of sealing power as only being something that is used in the temple, when in reality, sealing power is much broader than that, is the power that makes all ordinances binding, eternally permanent for the living and the dead. All ordinances require sealing power. And because Elijah came, all the ordinances we perform in this church have that eternally binding permanent power when we keep the covenants associated with them. And I love that because this Elijah came last in, in this uh, in this experience in Kirtland Temple. And it was sort of almost like a Again, he wasn't just restoring the ceiling so that we can be sealed, but it is sort of the capstone of everything that's happened. It's like, you have all the authority now. Now the ceiling power will will make these things effective on this side of the veil and that side of the veil, right? Exactly. And I love this. It brought me a new dynamic as a leader in the church where I recognize that as, you know, as a bishop, for example, and a baptism is happening, you're not just there as like, well, I'm the guy who who can allow this ordinance to happen, but to recognize that it's the sealing power coming from through you as the bishop, through those keys, all the way back to the, the president of the church who, who holds that sealing power. And that's like, there's almost something tangible there. Like, wow, like this is, this is really special. It's not just something, it's not just a, a rite of passage that we, we uh, want to write in the record books, but there's, there's something eternal happening here. And that's yeah, Absolutely. And, and speaking of writing in the record book, I mean, you were in my class where Joseph Smith makes a major point about that, that, Part of this ceiling on earth and ceiling in heaven is recording. So a lot of times we just kind of think of that as kind of a, you know, a, a nitpicky kind of thing to just make sure things are yeah. recorded right. But the point Joseph makes is, no, when they're recorded on earth, they're recorded in heaven. And if we don't keep good records, if we don't record these things, they didn't happen. Because when the books are opened, you want these things to be recorded on earth and heaven. And so that that also makes it much more important than just record keeping, that you are keeping, in essence, a, an eternal record that will be open judgment day. And so it, it just shows the importance of all these even little administrative, seemingly trivial things that we do in the church do have major significance. When we, you know, when a bishop shows up at that baptism, they are representing the Lord, exercising the keys they have to make this ordinance valid. And when they record it or have a clerk record it, it is being recorded in heaven and it, it gives power to these, like I said, seemingly trivial yeah. points. And I love, I'm just thinking of a, a great conversation a bishop would have with their clerk. Like, listen, you're not just here to like some administrative work and make sure everything's updated in the, in the computer. Like you understand that this is what you're recording is being recorded in heaven. So let's really make this a priority right. to to get this in and get those certificates out, get, you know, and, right. and make that record because it's not just a trivial administrative task. This is, there's something eternal happening here. 
Yeah, I, I think it gives meaning to what the Lord says in the Dasher Covenants, where he says to me, all things are spiritual. You know, even these seemingly trivial temporal things have spiritual value when you understand it that way. Yeah. yeah. Powerful. Anything else as far as the sealing power is concerned that would be helpful for a leader to understand that we haven't touched on? Well, we, we, something you asked me about earlier that we talked about in my class was uh, the nature of, of sealing marriages. A lot of times mm-hmm. people have questions about sealings, particularly when a couple has been sealed and then they are subsequently divorced. And a lot of people, because they're upset with their partner, they don't want to be with their partner. They want to immediately have that, that sealing canceled. But a lot of times, I think we don't understand what that sealing ordinance is all about. And so I'd maybe just like to touch on that. Yeah, be helpful. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 131, it uh, makes a powerful point about celestial marriage. Not only does it say that it's necessary to receive the highest of the three heavens within the celestial kingdom, it's the gateway ordinance to our exaltation. But it later says that the, the more sure word of prophecy means a man's knowing that he is sealed up unto eternal life by revelation and through the sealing power of the holy priesthood. Many people don't recognize that when you are sealed in celestial marriage, you aren't just sealed to your partner. If you listen carefully to the ceremony, it's very clear that you're being sealed up to eternal life based on your faithfulness. It's not an unconditional seal, but you are being sealed up to eternal life. All the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the blessings of the new and everlasting covenant, all the blessings of exaltation are being sealed upon you through that ordinance based on your faithfulness. And so when a marriage is dissolved, you don't want to cancel that sealing until they're ready to renew it again with someone else. Because even if they don't want to be with their partner, they still have made, they've still been sealed up to certain blessings that they don't want to loose. You know, this sealing power is the power to seal on earth and to, to unseal, to loose on earth, as it says. And to, to cancel that sealing is to not just cancel the relationship with a spouse, it's to cancel those covenants with God and those blessings that have been sealed upon you. And that's why the first presidency typically waits to cancel a sealing until a person's ready to be sealed to somebody else. Because it's not a matter of, of them being with that person in the next life. That's clearly not going to be the case. But because this is a covenant with God and you've been sealed up to eternal life based on your faithfulness. And so those blessings, you want to keep that relationship with God intact, regardless of what's happened to the relationship of your spouse. And I think if people had a better understanding of that, too often we treat celestial marriage like in a very, very simplistic, very romantic way. I want to be sealed in the temple because I want to be with my spouse forever. But in reality, it's so much bigger than that. Hmm. This is the gateway ordinance to exaltation. You are having eternal life sealed upon you. Uh, this is a big deal. And so the better we understand that, I think the, the more people will appreciate what this ordinance is all about and why it's so significant and why, why it matters so much and why we wouldn't want to cancel it until we're ready to renew it and receive it again. Yeah. And these are sometimes these are very difficult conversations to have. I mean, I remember very as a bishop, somebody coming in who's just is very bitter from a, a difficult divorce, which man, I can show a lot of empathy there and, and appreciation. And so they're just looking at, I want this person completely out of my life, completely out of my eternity. And so I think it's so helpful to maybe help them step back. And it may not be in that interview where emotions are high, but to, to work with them and help them understand that let's just remove that other person out of the equation here and realize that you have gone through an ordinance that connects you with God. Forget about that guy or that gal. I mean, let's focus on that and realize that as I understand what you're saying, that these blessings and covenants you've made will help you in your, in your single life as an individual. Absolutely. Striving to find the, another person maybe to redo that seal with. Absolutely. And on your children, there are blessings that come to the children born in that covenant. So you don't want to, you want to stay under the umbrella of that covenant. You don't want to dissolve that covenant until you're ready to renew that covenant. I think many of these issues and questions people would have would be resolved if they just reflected for a moment about what they believe about God. Mm-hmm. Right. You know that, that God is perfectly just and perfectly merciful and heaven is heaven for a reason. People aren't going to be in miserable relationships that they don't want to be in. God's not going to force you to be with somebody forever that you don't want to be with. And so just a, a little reflection on that, I think, would, would help a lot of people settle down and recognize why the policy exists that, that exists to wait until you're ready to be sealed in the temple again before those 
previous ceilings are canceled. Yeah. And so what, how do you answer as far as, far as this uh, concept of ceiling and eternal families and things? You know, I, I know a lot of people, I have some loved ones going through a divorce right now. And then, and he came to me and asked and said, well, what about my kids? You know, I, I want to be sealed to them. And, and if we're divorced or that counting, that ceiling is canceled, what about my kids? How would you respond to that? I'd probably respond the way that I just did. I, I think, you know, it's like Nephi, the classic answer from Nephi when he, uh, he was asked a question by an angel he didn't quite know the answer to. Of course, in 1 Nephi chapter 11, he, he famously responds when he's asked if, if he understands the condescension of God. He says, and I said unto him, I know that he loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. And uh, it seems like at first kind of a cop-out answer, but it's an important answer yeah. that God loves his children. And if we can keep that in mind, that God loves his children and he wants what's best for them, he wants them to be happy. And if they keep their covenants, they will be happy. Uh, more happiness than they can imagine in the next life. If they keep that in mind, then they can have the assurance and the comfort in knowing that things are going to work out, even if we don't have all the answers. You know, perfect world, everybody would get married and, and stay married and the children would be happy and they would be faithful and it would create this perfect family chain that we're trying to create from Adam down to the present day. But the reality of it is there are divorces, there are separations and other things that complicated deaths where people have to remarry and, and it really complicates that simple narrative. And there are not easy answers to some of those situations. And so it requires faith. It requires faith in a loving and merciful and kind God that you trust. He's your loving father in heaven, and he is not going to uh, make your heaven miserable. Uh, you're going to have all your losses will be restored to you. You're going to enjoy heaven for all eternity. And I think just having, having that principle in mind that God is a loving being, I think helps comfort and, and, and solve those problems, even if it doesn't give a, a complete answer right now. It gives us enough that we can continue on and trust in the Lord that yeah. things will work out. I think that's a powerful scripture to use in the bishop's office and, and really any question that you could get that maybe you don't have a clear or a helpful answer to just say, well, at least we know God loves us, right? We can all agree with that. And so if we know that God loves us, what do you think about that question? I mean, it's, it's going to turn out okay because he really does love us, even though we don't have the answer to every question, right? Yeah, exactly. I remember I had a student uh, whose family situation had gone through some of these things and, and she was asking me this question. I was trying to give an answer and, and she said, I, I just loved her answer. She just simply stated, well, Brother Matthews, I know, uh, you know, heaven is called heaven for a reason. And I appreciated that simple response. Heaven is called heaven for a reason. I just said, that's exactly right. And if you believe in heaven and you believe in a loving God, heaven's going to be heaven. Okay. Uh, you're not going to be forced and consigned to some relationship you don't want to be in and your children torn apart from you. If you are faithful to the covenants, then you will end up in heaven and, and you will receive the blessings you seek as long as we're faithful to the covenants that we've made. Yeah. I love that. Great, great uh, content there. Also, I guess, and a lot of times I would encourage individuals that, you know, when they came to this question of, well, what about my kids? You know, because as we talk about these doctrine, the main focal point is that sealing ordinance with a spouse someday. And it's like, well, when we know God loves us, we don't have all the answers of how this will work out, but let's focus on creating a life for that kid that someday they'll desire that ordinance so that they're sealed, you know, and those promises from Abraham will, will reach them as well. And that's our main point. And then at that point, once they're sealed, like, you know, we're all, we're all sealed. We're, it'll work out that way. We don't need to necessarily worry about if my nine-year-old is sealed to me today. And what if that seal's broken? What does that mean? Let's just keep them focused towards the temple and, and get them to that ordinance. Is that a fair response? Yeah, I think so. I think sometimes we, we kind of envision heaven, like we're all living in this little home and our children are little children forever. And, <laughs> and so it's like, well, if they're somewhere else, but they're still going to have an association with you. You know, I, I uh, was able to counsel a woman recently whose daughter was in a really difficult situation where her uh, husband, young husband died tragically in an automobile accident. And here she is, she's, she's faced with this question, do I, do I remarry? And if so, do I cancel the ceiling? And if I cancel that ceiling, will he have no association with his children? And she's just feeling really terrible about the, the, this choice that she has before. And uh, the scripture that I shared with the mother that, that she said she'd pass on is in Doctrine and Covenants 130, where it says that, quote, 
that same sociality which exists among us here will exist among us there, only it will be coupled with eternal glory, which glory we do not now enjoy. And I think that same sociality doesn't just include family relationship, but friendships as well. And so even if some of these ceilings might change the dynamic of a family relationship, it doesn't mean that you're no, never going to see that person again, that you're not going to love them anymore, that you're going to have no association with them. I think that scripture indicates just the opposite, that even in some of these complicated situations with blended families, parents of children and step-parents of children will still continue that same sociality, that same love, that same affection, that same relationship, only it will be coupled with you know, eternal glory, which we don't now enjoy. And so I think that's an important concept to have in mind as well, that even in some of these complicated situations, if you're not sealed directly to a person, it doesn't mean that you have no contact with them, that uh, you have no relationship with them and no love for them in the next life. <laughs> right. Those feelings continue and those relationships continue. Yeah. That's, and what I'm gathering from our conversation is sometimes if we take the doctrines of the gospel on a very superficial level, they can be kind of twisted in this way that seems like, well, that's kind of mean. Like God wouldn't do that. Like you, you're talking about families are together forever, but then, you know, you have one family that goes way, one family member that goes wayward and you know, then what? And that's not very fair. Right. But by understanding these doctrines deeper as a leader, it allows you to put them in, in the correct context, the correct understanding which then hope pours out of these, these doctrines as it should. I mean, <laughs> right. And it's, it's so helpful to, to better understand these things. Absolutely. As we wrap up, I, the last thing I want to talk about is in your presentation, education, we, you talked about the new and everlasting covenant. And I remember you asked the class to turn to your partner and, and I, I forget exactly how you put it, but explain what the new and everlasting covenant is. And I remember sitting there and I thought, and I said to myself, I think it's the, the uh, sum of all ordinances, but maybe I shouldn't say that. I, I'm not sure. Right. And it turns out that yeah, I was, got it right. I was in the ballpark. Yeah. <laughs> and so tell us about, cause I think this is another way that if by understanding the new and everlasting covenant, we can then start to frame these, these ordinances and these steps that just seem like, you know, this is what, just what I do when I'm going on a mission, I go through the temple, but by understanding the new and everlasting covenant, it brings a lot of power to that conversation and makes it a little more special. So where do we begin with the new and everlasting covenant? Well, I, I think you begin with the New and Everlasting Covenant, Understanding Doctrine and Covenants, section 66, verse 2, which says, Verily I say unto you, blessed are you for receiving mine everlasting covenant, even the fullness of my gospel. So that's your first hint that the, the New and Everlasting Covenant is broader than we sometimes make it. The most common answer I get when I ask that question is they say, well, it's eternal marriage. And I point out that in Doctrine and Covenants 132, it refers to eternal marriage as a new and everlasting mm, covenant. Yeah. Likewise, in Doctrine and Covenants 22, it refers to baptism as a new and an everlasting covenant. And so these individually are new and everlasting covenants. But the new and everlasting covenant is the sum total of all those combined covenants. And that's the point that Doctrine and Covenants section 132 makes where it, after it explains that marriage is a new and everlasting covenant, it says in verse six, and as pertaining to the new and everlasting covenant, it was instituted for the fullness of my glory. So it's the fullness of the covenant for the fullness of my glory. And verse seven goes on to say, and verily I say unto you that the conditions of this law, meaning the new and everlasting covenant are these, all covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections and associations, etc. And so the new and everlasting covenant is the whole thing. It's from baptism through eternal marriage, all the covenants we make with God to receive all the blessings that God has. That's what the new and everlasting covenant is. And uh, I think understanding that is powerful for a few reasons. Not only does it help us appreciate all the covenants we need, because too often there's people that focus so much on baptism that they think, you know, they've been baptized and that's it. Or, or they kind of know that marriage is important, but they don't quite know why. Understanding that this is the covenant. This is the same covenant that was given to Abraham. This is the same covenant that was given to Adam. This is the fullness of the gospel. These are the blessings that we, we've had around from the beginning. And so they are the new and everlasting covenant. So, yeah, that, that's what I'd want people to understand, the new everlasting covenant. I think understanding it helps you appreciate what the restoration is. Too often, we look at restoration from a New Testament perspective. I know a lot of people that think of it that way. Christ came to the earth in New Testament times. 
He established his church. It was lost. We've restored it. But that misses one of the major points of the restoration. When Christ came to the earth, he was restoring things that had been around from the days of Adam. He wasn't starting something new. He was restoring something very old. And appreciating that and understanding that the same gospel covenant that we have today wasn't just had in New Testament times. It was had in Abraham's time, in Moses' time, in Adam's time. This is the new and everlasting covenant. This was what is the plan of salvation. This is what God instituted from the beginning of the world. This is what he has delivered to us so that we can receive all the blessings of exaltation and become like him. And this is his work and his glory to bring to pass the immortality, eternal life of man. And the way we receive eternal life and all of the blessings of exaltation, all the blessings of our heavenly parents is through the new and everlasting covenant, which begins with baptism and culminates with eternal marriage. And I believe that's probably why eternal marriage is so associated with it. It's Mm -hmm. because once you've entered into eternal marriage, you've now entered into the full covenant. And if you are faithful to the covenant, you will receive all that the Father has. That's what's been sealed upon you in that ordinance. If you continue faithful, that full covenant, along with all its blessings, are yours and will be to all eternity. And that's powerful. Yeah, so powerful. So, I I mean, outside of, like you said, it's easy to talk about the new and everlasting covenant in the context of marriage. So, would you bring it up outside you know, of that ordinance, like when somebody's getting baptized or, you know, in, in relation to other ordinances outside of, of marriage, just to bring more power and, and meaning to those? Absolutely. I do every time. Yeah. I, I have it kind of in a, a stepping stone. I ask my uh, youth in my ward and my students in my classes, what are the saving ordinances of the gospel? Because I want them to understand this. This should be clear in our minds that the saving ordinances are baptism, confirmation, priesthood for men, endowment, temple marriage. These five saving ordinances are saving ordinances because they, it's through these ordinances that we enter into the covenant. A covenant is like a contract. I, I often teach my students and the way we sign the contract isn't by signing our name, it's by receiving an ordinance. That's how we enter into the contract, this covenant with God. And so, yeah, when, a, when somebody gets baptized, they ought to know this, they're making a covenant with God. They're starting this new and everlasting covenant. Uh, when a young man receives the priesthood, especially the Melchizedek priesthood, they're entering into an oath and covenant of the priesthood. And they need to understand that this is part of receiving all that God has. Same would be true of eternal marriage and especially, excuse me, of the endowment and especially of celestial marriage, that they're entering into the covenant with God to receive all that he has. And it comes piecemeal, ordinance upon ordinance, but that's how we grow to receive and enter into the full covenant and receive the full blessings based on our faithfulness. Yeah. And I love that, how, you know, the doctrine comes, talks about a new and everlasting covenant and reminding people you're, you're getting baptized. You're receiving a new and everlasting covenant so that we can work towards the new and everlasting. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to frame it. Yeah. And then it it helps them understand this isn't the end. You know, you, we want our investigators to understand that when you get baptized, you need to have your eyes forward to a year later when you can be endowed and sealed. I heard President Russell M. Nelson once say, endure to the endowment is the Mm. way he phrased it, right? Because you got to have that clear in your mind. And and the same is true of youth. You know, I taught seminary for, you know, over a decade and it would break my heart. I'd see some of these uh, young men and young women that would get baptized. They'd received the Aaronic priesthood and then they would never go on to receive their endowment or temple marriage or Melchizedek priesthood. And so they'd kind of entered into a portion of the covenant But because they didn't continue faithful, they never received the full covenant and could therefore never receive the full blessings that God has to offer us. The reason we came to this earth is to enter into that full covenant. And so you don't want to stop at baptism or stop, you know, as a deacon in the Aaronic priesthood, you want to go forward and receive these full blessings. Yeah. And I think sometimes it it can, again, on the, the superficial level, it can just be like, oh, well, if you're in the Mormon club, you got to do these things. But this is... These are ordinances. These are things that we just don't do just uh, just because, but they are connecting us to become to become exalted. I mean, that's yeah. I guess the the key buzzword there is is to receive exaltation, become like our heavenly parents. Right? Absolutely, and that's something that I I know many students have not quite understood when when they find out in section one thirty one that eternal marriage is necessary to receive the highest heaven. Some of them look at that like it's this hoop that they're supposed to jump. Through. Yeah, and so what I try and help them understand is. This isn't some hoop. This is literally what opens the way for us to become like our heavenly parents. We have an eternal father and eternal mother. The reason why they are eternal father and mother is because they are sealed in an eternal marriage. 
If you want to become like them and enjoy that kind of relationship and the power that they have, you can only get it the same way. It's through this ordinance that they're inviting you to receive. They're sharing these blessings with you. And so these aren't hoops to jump through. These are what make possible our entrance into God's presence. I mean, the same thing would be true of baptism. This isn't just some hoop to join, to jump through. It's through baptism and the covenant that you make that you are cleansed of your sins so that you can be in God's presence. Yeah. And so forth. All these ordinances, they aren't just, you know, these arbitrary requirements. These are the things that prepare us to enter God's presence, to become like him, to enjoy the relationships and the blessings that he enjoys. Awesome. Last question I typically ask people, and I just want from the context of your experience as a bishop, I guess it's been six months, so you've almost got it figured out. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're performing your first wedding today. So that'll yep, be a, one more thing, right? As you look back, and it could be in the context of being bishop or other uh, leadership roles that you've played, how has being a leader made you a better follower of Jesus Christ? So I've had many leadership experiences throughout my life. And I, I think that's a great question. How is a leader made me a better follower? I think in a few ways. One is when you're a leader, you appreciate those who are willing to follow you. You recognize that you're not perfect and you are doing your best to be inspired and to do what the Lord wants you to do. Sometimes that makes hard choices, hard decisions. And uh, you've got, I think, three kinds of members. You've got some that'll maybe balk at your decision and and, uh, not be willing to follow it. You've got a silent group that'll just kind of go along with it. And then you've got a group that express to you their willingness to follow. And they express that loyalty in a way that just not only comforts you, but it inspires you that there are people that, that are willing to follow. And having been in that position, it makes me want to show that same loyalty to those above me. I've always wanted to show my state president that I'd want to show the, the prophets and apostles that, that I'm not just kind of going along with it, but I love them. I appreciate them. I sustain them. I support them. I want them to feel that and know that. Because when a leader feels that and knows that, they have, I think, greater likelihood of receiving inspiration. I feel the same thing in a a classroom. You know, being a teacher isn't the same as being a leader, but there are many similarities. When you have a group of students, they're just kind of halfway there, kind of paying attention. You maybe teach a decent lesson. But when you have students that are there actively learning, they're there, they want to learn. They're asking questions. They're participating. It pulls out better teaching from you. You get an inspiration that you wouldn't have otherwise. The Holy Ghost helps you because the Holy Ghost wants to reach them. And so the Holy Ghost magnifies you better because of the faith and the efforts of the students you're teaching. Well, the same thing is true in leadership. When you have people that show they want to follow, that they trust that the Lord can inspire you, then it pulls inspiration out of you. President Iring talked about this recently in a, a conference talk where he talked about a young man that when he was serving as a bishop who would come to him for counsel. And the first time he came, he gave him, as President Iring said, frankly, lousy counsel and it didn't work. And so the young man returned and said, you know, that didn't work, but I believe in you. I believe you can give me this inspired counsel. And he comes back and, and President Iring talked about how that touched him, that this man would trust him because of his office and it made him you know, dig deeper and, and find that inspiration to be able to help him. Well, I, I think that that's a true principle. And so when we're good followers, we make our leaders better. It makes me always want to be a good follower. And I, I just, I believe in that principle. The best in the church, the best leaders are those that are the best followers. Those that lead the church today. I mean, what makes President Nelson such an inspiring and powerful leader is because in his heart of hearts, all he wants to do is follow Jesus Christ and do what the Lord wants him to do. That's what makes him such a powerful leader. And it's hard sometimes because the Lord might want you to do something that's not popular or say something that's not popular. And the temptation is to say what people are going to like, say something that's going to be nice, but maybe not kind. Say something that is going to make people like you, but isn't necessarily what they need to hear. And have that submissive obedience to the Lord to just say, I will say what you want me to say. I'll do what you want me to do. Give me the message and I'll declare it regardless of what people think, regardless of what people do. That willingness to follow the Lord is what makes powerful leaders. And I I know that's true by my own experience. I bear witness that that's true. 
And that concludes this How I Lead interview. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I would ask you, could you take a minute and drop this link in an email, on social media, in a text, wherever it makes the most sense and share it with somebody who could relate to this experience. And this is how we develop as leaders, just hearing what the other guy's doing, trying some things out, testing, adjusting for your area. And uh, that's where great leadership's discovered, right? So we would love to have you uh, share this with uh, somebody in this calling or a related calling. And that would be great. And also, if you know somebody, uh, any type of leader, who would be a fantastic guest on the How I Lead segment, reach out to us. Go to leadingsaints.org slash contact. Maybe send this individual an email letting them know that you're going to be suggesting their name for this interview. We'll reach out to them and uh, see if we can line them up. So again, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact. And there you can submit all the information and let us know. And maybe they will be on a future How I Lead segment on the Leading Saints podcast. And that concludes this throwback episode of the Leading Saints podcast. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.